So, uh, I want you to think about something as we begin this morning. What type of religion is Christianity? What should mark Christianity? Because most people see religion as an endless set of rules that want to suck all the joy out of our lives. And too often, Christianity is viewed that way. Because far too often, Christianity is practiced and presented that way. As a list of rules to keep everyone in, in line and to point out the faults in everyone else. And this becomes a joyless and dead religion. And so, as we think about that, so if that's not what Christianity is supposed to be, what does that mean for us? What marks the life of a disciple of Christ? Is our new life in Christ one of sorrow, complaining, being bitter, being scared? Or is it one of joy, being thankful, being grateful, being joyous? And one of the things I want you to see this morning as we prepare to look at Jesus' exchange with those who question Him is... How is my Christian life related to how I view Jesus? And how does the way I live out my life, is it influenced by Christ and what he says I have in him? Or am I trying to straddle Christ in the world at the same time? Or am I living according to my flesh? And one of the the points of tension here with the religious leaders of the day is that their lives were marked by continual fasting, continual sorrowful misery that they wore on their faces and their bodies. And they were marked by that. And now, while sorrow and misery and and pain are part and parcel of our lives in this fallen world, if we realize that Jesus paid for our joy with His pain, Our countenance and our posture before God and man should be different. Especially in a time when everyone gets so angry so quickly. Everyone is so quick to be be fearful and to be driven to and fro by every wind of culture. We should pray the Lord to renew the joy of our salvation. We should be joyous people with hope on our hearts and praise on our lips. And that should set us apart from every other person on the planet. And so what we're going to address this morning is exactly what Judaism became in Jesus' day. This dead orthodoxy. This set of rules and regulations that were endless. That had no life in it. That could not change people but it actually became oppressive. And we have to be careful that our Christian lives are not legalistic and joyless. We have so much to be thankful for in Christ. But this, where we find ourselves in Mark this morning, is in the middle of the escalating, uh, the escalating conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. And it's going to keep escalating until they begin to plot to kill him later on in chapter 3. But right now, this is not the local leaders confronting Jesus. These are bystanders who are saying, wait a second, there's something going on over here, and you're doing something different. 
who's right? How do we, how do we determine these things? And so as the contrast becomes more and more stark, Jesus becomes more threatening to their way of life. And so how do we learn from this and how do we apply this? So if you have your Bibles, please open them up. And if you don't, there's one in the pew in front of you. And uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2. I'm reading 18 through 22. Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. As the God of all things new, the God of new creation, the God of new covenant, the God who took on flesh to do something new in the hearts of his people. That all of the other religious requirements that burdened people, enslaved people, as Paul says, are now given freedom in Christ Jesus. Lord, how amazing it is that you called us to be a people of joy. So many religions around the world are marked by misery, self-denial, self-deprecation. While we are to be humbled in your name, you exalt us in Christ Jesus. You give us joy and peace and hope and praise. Because you have given us the new wine of your blood. It is your blood that covers us. It is your life that fills us. It is your spirit that empowers us and carries us and preserves us. We praise you, God, for what you do in your people. I want us to be encouraged this morning. I pray for your church in this building and across the world that we would stand tall in Christ and confident in him. That in our hearts we bow before Him and no one else. But we stand firmly before the world and say, I serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is my rock and my salvation. And Him I serve, not out of obligation, but out of joyful obedience. Because of the love He has shown me and the grace and mercy He has applied to me. What a beautiful reminder of the gospel and what a wonderful God we serve. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this morning in our text, 
Uh, We're going to be drawing on some of the cultural issues of the day and cultural analogies. And some of you, if you read this passage, you're like, what is going on here? What's the big deal about fasting and what does garments and wine have to do with any of this? I think it's natural to read this on, on first glance and think, how are these things connected? Well, hopefully we'll bring some clarity to it. Uh, we're also going to rely on the prophet Isaiah. If you guys know I love Isaiah, we spent a lot of time referencing Isaiah. Isaiah is called the gospel of the Old Testament. So this morning you will keep your finger in Isaiah. Um, and we're going to look at some of the things that Isaiah prophesied that directly looks to where we are this morning. So in making sense of this, Jesus is going to address their, their question with an analogy, and he's going to illustrate it with a couple parables. So that's how we're going to approach it. You've got the question that happens in, in verse 18, and then you've got the correct posture for the question that we get in 19 and 20, and then we get the two parables that we'll deal with in 21 and 22. So that's where we are. Let's jump into verse 18. Now here's... The, um, the problem or the, the perception difference that is addressed to Jesus. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came to them and said, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? Now, one thing I want you to kind of put in the back of your mind, in all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these events that we've seen, the healing in our previous passage, Uh, the calling of Levi in in last week, and the question about fasting, and the issue of Sabbath, all are successive, meaning they're all in the same order in in all three Gospels. And so we've talked about this before. Sometimes the Gospels are arranged thematically. But these are all told in the same way with the same details with minor variants. So is there a reason for that? And I'm going to make an argument that there is. We'll get there in a moment. But keep that in mind because last week we looked at the calling of one of Jesus' disciples. He was this sinful, greedy tax collector. And in response from hearing the words, follow me from Jesus, he throws a big party and invites all of his sinner friends. And the Pharisees don't know what to do with this. But now a question comes up about fasting. Now, are these two things connected? Well, let's deal with the uh, players in the situation first and then we'll see if these things are connected. First, um, Mark says, and people came to him. So people involve different groups of people. uh, But Matthew says that the disciples of John came to him. So within this this crowd, you've got the disciples of John who, as we see in the Gospels, they can be confused because they know that John said, this is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world and go follow him. But the ministry of John and Jesus look different, as, as they should. And so they have some questions, and there's probably people surrounding them as well. And they raise a problem. What problem do they raise? The problem of fasting. Why do you not? And they do. So what are they asking here? What's going on? So first thing we need to understand is that, that biblically, the only time you are required, obligated to fast, is the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It's this when all of Israel would come together for the Feast of the Booths and they would gather and the the Day of Atonement would be when everyone would fast because this was the time when the collective sins of of Israel would would be put on the altar. Once a year, the Day of Atoning Sacrifice for everyone, this was a day to fast because your sins were atoned for, covered, forgiven that day. Now, there are many fasts in the Old Testament. There are many reasons to fast, and, and many people did, and it's, and it's a good godly practice to remove yourself from some kind of dependence on physical sustenance to 
lean into dependence on the Lord. Your reliance on the Lord is, is never more in front of your face than when you are fasting. And so many godly men and women do this throughout the Old Testament, and they would do it voluntarily for different reasons and different occurrences. But what had happened in Jesus' day, this developed into such a physical uh, expression of your holiness and your devotion before God and man that you would do it publicly. Luke adds the detail that the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast and offer prayers often. Now, so, what's the big deal with that? Well, I want us to look at the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew. How does Jesus address this? What is the, the, the contrast that's going on? So something that began by being an exercise in devotion to the Lord became something that was very self-serving. I want you to see in Matthew chapter 6, I want to pick up in verse 5. So they offer prayers often, as, as you should, and they fasted often, as you should. But what did their prayers and their fast look like? Look at the prayers. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, read Pharisees here, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. So we don't understand this. Because most of us pray silently. If we, if we pray out loud, it's, it's with others. It's corporately. It's in the, in the context of worship. But in those days, they would stand out on the street corner. Oh, God, you are great. I am your holy servant. This would bring some attention to yourself. This became very self-serving. Look how holy I am. But Jesus tells them to do something different. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And the fasting also, this act of being contrite, being broken before God, became a public spectacle. Look in chapter 6, verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others, meaning they wouldn't clean themselves. They'd walk around dirty. They would have this gruff scowl on their face. Look how much I am torturing myself. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. You want to look holy in front of other people? Great. That's all you're going to get out of this. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, clean yourself up, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the problem here. Judaism became this set of legalistic standards that were to show off in front of other people. Jesus is doing something very different. We'll get there in a moment. But this is something that Isaiah prophesies. And if you turn to Isaiah chapter 58, again, keep your finger there. We're going to go back a few times. But Isaiah prophesies how their fasts are going to look. Something that should be humble, that should be unto the Lord, that should not be self-serving, became very selfish. And they wonder why they were oppressed by the Romans and why it seemed like the Lord had left them. They hadn't had a prophet in 400 years. Look at Isaiah 58 verse 3. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Then kind of the response, um, excuse me, one more line, and then the response. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? 
Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. They got hangry when they, when they fasted. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day that is acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? Look at the difference here. To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? And when you see him naked, to cover him? Not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing finger and speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desires of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desires in scorched places and make your bones strong. That is what you want when you're fasting. You want your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. When you are fasting before the Lord, it is a spring of life in you. Even though you have no strength, because you have, re- you have removed food from your, from your diet, this is not a time of self-serving. This is a time of humility, time of compassion, time of care. And you glorify God by doing it unto Him and loving others in the process. And what the Pharisees were doing were anything but. And so what we also know is that outside of the Old Testament, there was the tradition of the elders, the oral tradition that continued. It was not written down, it was not canonized in our Old Testament, but was accepted as law. And in this tradition of the elders, the Pharisees added all of these additional fasts. They called them the afflictions of the soul. They afflicted themselves two days a week. Every Monday and Thursday, the the, the Didache, an early Christian document, tells us about this, this legalism that from sunup to sundown, from dusk till dawn, or from dawn to dusk, they would fast two days a week and make this a public spectacle in front of everyone that watched. And so, if this is so obvious and everyone sees it, and Jesus does something very different, there's something at, at stake here. Why are you so different than them? If these are the most religious people that we have, Why are you doing a different fast than than they're doing? So there's another question, remember I brought up earlier, are these successive? So if Levi's feast was on a Monday or Thursday, when everyone else, the devoted disciples of John or the Pharisees, were fasting, now you can see the contrast. They're out in the street wailing, drawing attention to themselves. Jesus kicked back on the couch feasting with sinners. This is crazy. This is scandalous. That's why this is a big deal. And so you've got the two most revered religious groups at the time. Now see, the Pharisees are the self-appointed, self-righteous leaders. 
They have no official standing within Israel, but they've kind of placed themselves in Moses' seat. They give themselves the, the title of the um, rightful bearers of the law of Moses. And they add all of these additional uh, Pharisaical laws on top of it. Isaiah again prophesies this in 28.13. This will be on the screen because it's just one verse. Isaiah 28.13. And the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. These are the Pharisees who've added all of these extra things, all of these extra fasts, and it becomes a snare to them. And so you've got the Pharisees who really have set the tone for Judaism still up to this day. All of the rabbinical traditions are what the Orthodox Jews hold to today. And then you've got John's disciples who are very different. So John, as we know, he's a, he's a minimalist. He lives in the, in the wilderness, eats locusts and wild honey. Um, he was what we would call an ascetic. Basically, he denied himself uh, the, the comforts of life so that he could be more devoted to the Lord. And so his disciples would have followed him in that. So you've got those who will dress in all the, the garb, the, the Pharisees. You've got the guys who dress kind of weird and smell and live out in the wilderness. And they're both fasting, often. But most likely for different reasons. But now Jesus' disciples are not. So now that we've set the tone, now that we kind of get what's going on here, hopefully I didn't spend too much time on that, uh, but I, I want you to get the sense of, of why this is brought up. So now how does Jesus respond? As he does very inter- inter- interestingly, he rarely responds as how, how, we think they should, how we think he should or they think he should. So he responds, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. fast. Now, okay, Jesus, this seems a little left field. We'll get there in a second. But he doesn't deny the fact that fasting is is a good thing, but when they are appropriate. So Jesus used this common wedding analogy to to answer them. Matthew includes the important detail that um, why fast or mourn? Matthew calls this mourning. So what is mourning mark? It marks funerals, not weddings. So Jesus is contrasting something that is somber and and that is lifeless and it is cold with weddings. This is the the party event of the social calendar year. When someone gets married, everybody comes, everybody parties for a week. This is a good thing. This is celebratory. So Jesus is is contrasting the legalistic cold mourning of the Pharisees with the celebratory wedding. Jesus is the bridegroom. And his disciples are invited to his big day. This is to be a joyous time, not a somber one. So this completely changes the tone. The posture is different here. Jesus redirects as he often does. He doesn't answer the way that they want to be answered, but the way that they should be answered. And so why use this analogy? He uses it often. Well, if you know your scriptures, guess where? In Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah 54. You should still have your finger in Isaiah. If you know your scriptures, then there are some amazing promises that happen within Isaiah. And Jesus speaks of himself as the bridegroom. Bridegroom is the fancy way of saying the groom or the soon-to-be husband. Isaiah 54, picking up in verse 4. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, 
for you'll not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your Maker, capital M, your Creator is your husband. This is a divine promise. And the Lord of hosts is His name, in case you missed the subtle hint here. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is a divine promise to take a nation that is as valuable as a widow. No one to take care of her. Seem like the Lord turned her face from her and says, I will be your husband, your Lord, your Redeemer as well. This is a beautiful promise, and it gets even more beautiful if you look at Isaiah 62. This directly relates to our passage, just verses 4 and 5. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, Isaiah 62, 4, and your land shall no longer be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. Well, that seems weird, but if you've in our Deuteronomy study, were the two promises to Abraham that we saw again and again and again. Land and offspring. The land, the promised place where Israel would dwell, this nomadic people would find a home. Your land will be married. There will be a celebration and a feasting. You will be united to your God in your land. That's one. Verse 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. You've got the promises of land and offspring to Abraham fulfilled in the one who is the bridegroom. The marriage ceremony that we all look forward to that is promised in Isaiah where the land will bring forth fruit and celebrate, where the, the people will be rejoiced over as a groom rejoices over the bride. And when Jesus says, if the wedding guests have the bridegroom with them, they don't need to fast. This is layered and all that. But Jesus in this is saying, I am the divine promise. I am the bridegroom that Isaiah spoke about. I am the one that you are all looking for. You think that's a time to mourn? I'm here. The kingdom of God is being proclaimed. This authority that you're all marveling at. This teaching that you're all marveling at. The healings and the repentance and, and the proclamation of the gospel. This is the wedding feast. The bridegroom is preparing his bride. He is inviting the guests. This is what's happening. That is not a time for sorrow. That is not a time for fasting. You don't fast during party preparation. You rejoice in this time. So that's, that's what Jesus is, is, is getting at. There's a sharp contrast between the celebratory joy of Jesus and his disciples and the public mourning of the disciples of other religious leaders of his time. Now, there is an appropriate time, though. Jesus said this is not the time, but there is a time. Look at verse 20. He says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, the groom will leave. He will be taken from them. There will be a time before the wedding where the bride and the groom will be separated. And the bride is going to feel terribly and she's going to mourn and she's going to miss her husband and she's going to cry out to him. That is the time to fast. What time 
is that? Well, before we get to Jesus addressing it, guess who else addresses this? Isaiah. Isaiah 53. This great song of the suffering servant. Jesus says there will be a time when the groom is taken away. Look at what Isaiah says about that, verse 7 of chapter 53. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb. He was led to the slaughter. What's he talking about? The spotless lamb going to the cross. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. For the judgment of his people. That's when the groom will be taken away. The groom must pay the dowry for his bride, and the the dowry was his own life. The spotless lamb, the only sufficient price to be paid for sin, in their judgment he took on himself. He's cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of his people. That's how the verse finishes. That is when he will be taken away. That is the time when you fast and, and mourn. Jesus also addresses this in John 16. I think this is really helpful. This brings it all the way back to where we, where we begin. What is the posture of the followers of Christ? If you have your Bibles, look at John 16. There's an appropriate time to be somber and humbled before the Lord. Jesus addresses this. John 16, verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says? And they were arguing amongst themselves a little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will, not, and you will see me because I'm going to the Father. So they're saying, what does he mean by this? Jesus picks up and answers them in verse 19. Is this what you are asking yourself? What I mean by a little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. And the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. This is your time for mourning. But your sorrow will turn into joy. And this is the key. The groom will be taken away. That's the time for mourning and sorrow. But the Christian life is one of sorrow to joy. Death to life. Sin to salvation. He continues. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. That is the overwhelming posture of the Christian. No one can take your joy from you. Don't let them. Don't give in to the lies that we need to be sorrowful, mourning, mournful people all the time. We serve a God who took on flesh to secure our joy. That we might be joyful in Him. Yes, there is appropriate time for sorrow and, and mourning. But that is not all the time. That is not the continued posture of the believer. And so if your weekly rhythm, like these, these Pharisees, is marked by joy and bitterness and downcastness. This is in complete contrast to the one who came to purchase your joy. But there's a time for fasting. And so I I just want to address that. Yes, I'm not putting down fasting. I'm putting on this type of fasting. Fasting is a good thing. 
We implement it into the life of, of a believer for times when it's appropriate so that we can, we can lean into our reliance on the Lord. We can separate ourselves from the comforts of this, of this world. Focus our eyes on, on Him. Not to proclaim it to the world, but to, as a time of humility and gentleness and reorienting our sight to the King of Kings so that we can get back to our joy. And, this, and there, this is a healthy rhythm within the life of the believer. But it is not the primary posture of the believer. All right, so now to illustrate that, how incompatible these things are, he has two parables, two parables that are common for them. And as every good teacher, he addresses a question, he, he clarifies it, and then he gives illustration for application. So now here's we are. This is here where we are, the illustration for application. So I'm going to look at both of these together, some commonalities between these two parables, and then we'll look at a couple things in each of them and uh, finish up after that. So the first thing I want you to see, both of these start the same way. No one. No one puts new patches on old clothes. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. What's he saying here? Who would do this? What you are doing makes no sense. And um, these man-ordained fasts, their old patches and their, their wine in, old, or excuse me, old wine in a time of new wine. And so there's this contrast there between old and new. This makes no sense. Who would do this? I'm trying to think of good examples. There's many examples. I have a cousin who I love, but he had this weird thing where um, when you, he would get, one day I, I bought a new pair of sneakers, right? And he goes up and tries to step on them. I was like, what are you doing? He said, well, the first thing you do when you get a new pair of sneakers is you, you, you get them dirty. It's like, who does that? Like, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. I mean, maybe that was just me. I was, I was a sneakerhead earlier in, in life. Um, or maybe it's we do all this work next door and we, we, we paint everything and we put the ugly green paneling back on. Like, who does that? This is how, this is how ridiculous this is. It's like, it's like taking a jug of old milk Drinking it all and then pouring new milk in it with the old milk still in there. This is ridiculous. No one does this stuff. And so this is what Jesus is, is trying to get their attention. Most of you are not sewing patches on clothes, and most of you are not making your own wine, so maybe it's lost on us. But this is like, who does this? And that's, that, that's what he's, he's getting at. And the, this is the contrast. How can you, I'm here, how can you bring the old sorrowful Judaism in with the joy and celebration of your Savior, Emmanuel, walking in your midst. The old way versus the new way, truth, and life. This is really what we're, we're dealing with, and he uses two examples for that. And so what we're looking at is what is passing away. Old shrunken, old clothes, and old wineskins. We'll get there in a moment. The finite versus the infinite, the new. And so the old must make way for the new, and the two cannot exist together. So really what he's getting at here, theologically, he's getting at Old Covenant versus New Covenant. The Law of Moses versus the New Covenant in Christ. So I'm going to plug really heavy here. It's part of the reason why we're going through Hebrews next in our Bible study. We encourage all of you to join us. Uh, we'll start in a couple weeks. And the whole point of the book of Hebrews is to show how the Old Covenant, the old thing that is passing away, is now fulfilled in Christ. And to try to bring these two together, to keep them living together, makes no sense. Uh, Hebrews 8.13 sums this up really well. It's going to be on the screen because I'm going to move on quickly. 
And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So Jesus comes in with new covenant, new covenant expectations. The old is passing away. But again, as a good teacher, he uses illustrations that they understand. So uh, one of my pastor, old pastors used in a, a story about his son, and uh, I'm going to steal it from him, but he won't mind. Uh, so he talks about his little two-year-old who he would give a juice box to. And he'd take his juice box, he got excited, and he'd squeeze out all of the juice till there was nothing left into it. He held it so tightly in his fist, you could not get it out. And his loving father comes up and says, hand me the, the juice box. I'm like, no, this is my juice box. I'm not letting go of it. But I'm your father, I love you. Hand me the juice box. And he wouldn't hand it over. Little did he know, if he handed it over, his father would give him a new, full juice box. We are no different than the two-year-olds. Holding on to what is empty and dead and there's nothing in it. I don't want to let go of what is comfortable to me. But our Father offers us new. On a, on a personal level, most of you know uh, I used to be a DJ and live in, live in the world and everything that comes along with that, a completely secular lifestyle. And after being converted, because I made good money, I made really good money, I figured, yeah, I could walk with one foot in each world for a while. I did that for about six months. And so I could, how do you read your Bible in the morning and then go out into the hedonistic world all night? And this was a real conflict within me, and I thought I could do it. I thought I was strong enough, but I am not. There is no one who is. I think about, it is sad how many people do this. They claim that they are following Christ, but they live a secular lifestyle. They look no different than the world. I can do all the same things I already did. Jesus saved me. I'm good. And so I'll just go back to all of my my normal things. That is not how we're meant to be. The old cannot be compatible with the new. The new is come. Get rid of the old. And what are we getting rid of? These two examples, which are are great. So the first one is this... uh, patch that's that's sewn on sewn on luke includes the additional detail that no one takes a piece from a new garment and sews it on a sews it on an old one it's like hey I'm, I'm gonna buy a new shirt to cut a hole in it to patch my old shirt like again who does that this is what jesus is is, is getting at here the new one is is strong it hasn't been been worn down it will stand up the test of time the other one has seen its day the other one has been through its, its lifespan. And so if you take a, an old shirt that is, that is brittle and you put a strong new shirt on it, the first time you stretch, you're going to do the Chris Farley thing and it's just going to rip apart. This is what Jesus is getting at. You can't do, put these two things together. You can't put a, a new patch on an old pair of jeans and call them new. So the point here is that Judaism is not, or excuse me, Christianity is not a patch for Judaism. The kingdom of God is, is not just one patch It is new clothes. That's why Paul uses this example. Put off garment language. Put off the old tattered rags of slavery to empty religion. Put off the old tattered rags of the law that has held you down with all of its its commitments. Put on the new cloak of righteousness in Christ. And in those new clothes, now you are a new person. Like, you can't put a new face on a dead body. Turns into a Frankenstein monster. You need a new body. This is pointing to life in Christ. You you are a new garment. Stop 
trying to meld the two together. He uses another example of wineskins. Now, again, this is something we don't understand. None of you, if you have ever made wine, you have not made it in wineskins. I pretty much guarantee that. So what they would do is they take these leather sacks and the, the wine would be poured in there. And if you don't know anything about winemaking, air is the enemy of wine. It turns it into vinegar. So you try to seal it as best you can, but it can only happen so long. For us, old wine is, is vintage. It's good stuff. But to them, old wine is bad. And so in this leather uh, wineskin, it begins to take on the characteristics of the wine. And as it, as it ferments, it expands and it, and, it, and it contracts, but it also weakens the leather. It weakens the wineskin. And so that wineskin is good for one-time use. You did not reuse wineskins. And so the same thing applies. So just you know, cutting right to the chase, Jesus is the new wine. Why would you put new wine into the old practices of old wineskins? Jesus is the new wine, fresh and sweet and full of flavor, the good stuff, like the wedding at Cana. Instant vintage. All of the beauties and complexities of a good wine. Salvation and restoration. That is who Jesus is. But the empty religion of the Pharisees is is, is old wine that is, that is bitter and lifeless and an old wineskin cannot contain it. So that's why there must be a new wineskin. So what does the wineskin refer to? A new body. You must be born again. You must be made anew. If Jesus Christ is the living water, if he is the new wine, then he needs new wineskins. Then the Holy Spirit needs to make you new make you an acceptable temple for the Lord so that Jesus can be poured into you. He makes you a new wineskin so you are suitable for him, so that his bride will be suitable for the groom. That's the picture here. In contrast to what they were seeing in the other religious leaders of the day. We have to think about, though, how often... Do we think of ourselves as new wineskins? Think of Christ as new wine. And how often do we go back to the thing of the old wineskin? Well, this is so much more comfortable. My little empty juice box is what I've always known. But Jesus offers you new wine, new life in him. If you want more on this, look at Colossians 3. All the things that he tells you to put off. The old clothes, the old wineskins, and to put on in Christ. And so there's an application here for us. You know, as we wind down. Too often people try to make new life in Christ fit into the old person. You know, it can't just be behavioral modification. Yeah, let's just change some things on the outside. Just do these other set of religious observances. Now you can start doing your Christian set of observances versus what you were doing before. You need a new life. You need a new heart. That's why the gospel is so important. This is why Jesus preached repentance and forgiveness. You must turn from your sin and turn to him and be made new. Then you will be suitable for the new wine. But how often do we try to make people moralistic converts? Do these set of rules. Dress this way. Do all of these things. It is empty and joyless. It's no different than what the Pharisees were doing. 
You cannot please God by empty, continual practices. We are not saved by our works. It is by our faith in Him. And this is what Jesus is saying. It is better to be in my presence celebrating than all the fast and, and legalistic things you can muster. I am here. You're missing the point. I am life. These other things are not life-giving. But if you are new wine, there must be a behavioral change. If you are Excuse me, if you are a new wineskin with new wine, there must be a behavioral change. There must be something different about us. Shouldn't we be joyful people who has no desire for the old, brittle wineskins? Can you spot those things in your life? Can you spot those things in your life that are old wineskins? Trusting in your finances, finding your identity in another person, looking to the world's answers for things, self-medicating, you can go down the list. The things that you've always done that you put in place of Christ, how often do you keep bringing them back into your life and putting them before Christ, making them idols? That is what is at the heart of this, idolatry. The idolatry of the old garment and the old wineskins. And they're not meant to dwell together. If you try to put them together, they're going to tear at one another. If you feel conflicted inside, it's probably because there's some of this going on. You're still trying to have one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. You cannot serve two masters. They will tug at one another. Jesus is telling them, I am the new wine. There is a time of new wine. I just want you to rest in that. Like In Christ, we have new wine the good stuff. He is our bridegroom. We are the bride. There is much to be joyful about. And let us be joyful people, not fake Joel Osteen joyful. Not silly, stupid grins on our faces. Tell him I said that. (laughs) Joyful people. True joy. That when my family gets sick, when I lose my job, I am still praising the Lord. That is true joy. True joy is not circumstantial. Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world. I have done all this that your joy might be complete. There is a time to fast. There is a time for religious observance. I am not saying that. I am not being antinomian here, meaning without laws. It is good to be obedient. It is good to keep the law. Jesus says you show your love for him by our keeping of commandments. But we do it voluntarily. We do it joyfully. We do it because we love him and we want to please him, not to look good in front of other people. And he is our primary focus. Our primary posture is one of joy and celebrating new creation and looking forward to the wedding feast in Christ. Now, providentially, this passage falls on a communion Sunday. And we will approach the table. And so all of this imagery is so vivid, I don't, know if I, need, I don't think I need another passage. But I want you to think as we prepare our hearts to partake of communion, that when you approach this table, you are declaring by getting out of, just want to let you know, why do you guys get out of your seat? Why do you come up here? Because we want you to think about when you stand up and you walk up here, you are declaring by that very action 
that I am a new wineskin. I am living in the time of new wine because Jesus, as the new wine, lives in me. And that is the same wine that he gave to his disciples, the wine of the new covenant, in his blood. And so the wine signifies his blood for us, that we bear the covering, the newness of our Savior. So deacons, if you want to grab the uh, supplies, you can. Uh, one of the things I really appreciate about Josh and Nin, and they didn't know I was going to say this, but I'm sure they're fine with it, that they have taught their boys that when we drink wine, it reminds us of Jesus' blood. So dad has a glass of wine. I said, what is this? What does this, this mean? That's Jesus' blood on the cross. From day one, we should know this. And we should never forget this. Especially when we approach this, this table. This is a joyful celebration, not a somber memorial. Because in it, we recognize that that new wine of salvation is in us, if we are indeed in Christ, and we are also the bride. Jesus said, I will not drink of that wine again, the, the, the fruit of the vine, until I meet you in my kingdom. We will also, as his bride, have a day of consummation. The biggest celebration the world has ever known. We will drink of this fruit with Christ. What a beautiful reminder. His body. His perfect atonement. He was taken away so that he could die for sins. And when he died, his blood was shed, and that blood was a covering to make us new. The new covenant in his blood. No old patches or old wineskins needed. So I want to give you a few moments to prepare your hearts before the Lord. If you have any unconfessed sins, anything that you have left on your own chest and have not surrendered before the Lord, please do. This is a table for the body of Christ. If you're a member of the body of Christ anywhere, you are welcome to join us. If you are not, you need prayer, you would like to talk about this, please come see me afterward. I would love to talk to you 